Hi there, you're listening to Cool Jews doing cool things in cool places, otherwise known as the Cool Jews podcast. I'm your host, Yost Tarshish. And I'm your co-host, Joe Roberts. And today we're joined in our first episode by Robin Moss. Robin, how are you? Very good, thank you. Very good. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, so Robin Moss is the Director of Strategy for the UJIA, the United Jewish Israel Appeal, which is the largest Israel organization within the British Jewish community. He's widely acknowledged as one of the leading Israel educators working in the Jewish world today, and he currently heads a team of 22 educators um, who deliver Israel engagement program uh, that reaches over 12,000 young people a year. He grew up in LJY Netzer, the Zionist youth movement of the liberal Judaism and the, the liberal Jewish movement in the UK, um, and has worked with young, young people in Jewish and non-Jewish schools on campuses, in youth movements, in synagogue settings, and on Israel trips. Uh, he's traveled the world lecturing about Israel and talking about Israel um, to Limud conferences around the world in Australia. And I believe you're heading to South Africa this summer. Well, all being well with this uh, terrible virus, I will be going to South Africa <laughs> this summer, yes. He's also um, been a Schusterman Fellow um, and is generally thought of as a world innovator, an innovator on Israel engagement. So, Robin, the organization you work for, UJIA, they're focuses around Israel engagement. Can you give our listeners a little bit of an insight onto what is Israel engagement and how does it differ from maybe other forms of Israel education that some of us maybe are more used to hearing about? Sure. So first of all, thank you for having me on the podcast. It's really a pleasure to be here. Uh, I grew up in London, but the one in the UK, and it's uh, fun for this podcast to be sitting here in the other, maybe the the more important London. Um, <laughs> London, so, Ontario, for those who are listening. Yes. yes. So I work in the British Jewish community. I work for this organization called UJIA. Um, and yeah, we would define our mission as engaging people with Israel. Um, what we say is that we see engagement as there are like three ways that you can be engaged with Israel or through us. One is learning about Israel. The second is experiencing Israel, going and spending time in Israel, meeting Israelis and so on. And the third is giving to Israel, philanthropy. So how would we differentiate Israel engagement from other forms of Israel education? Um, Maybe the easiest way is by contrast. So traditionally, some people might be on Israel studies programs, like at universities or colleges or whatever. And there, the subject matter is Israel, and the individual is not really meant to have any relationship to it. It's, it's an intellectual pursuit of understanding and engaging with, or, or, or learning about, sorry, um, Israel, its past, its present, its future. And that is very important, is, is not for us Israel engagement. Another group of people... Um, are doing Israel advocacy. So they're um, seeing Israel as something that needs to be protected, defended, argued for, um, all of those kind of things. Uh, and therefore, if you like, the object of study, the central relationship, is actually the relationship between me as an individual and the people I'm trying to convince. Um, in some cases, other Jews, mostly non-Jews, the non-Jewish world, to, to be supportive of Israel. And um, and again, that's important, but that's not for us what Israel engagement is about. For us, Israel engagement is about the relationship of each individual Jew and of the Jewish community, and I suppose the Jewish people, but like on the, in our case, the British Jewish community and Israel. It's about building up a connection that lasts hopefully for a lifetime, where Jews see Israel as part of their Jewish identity. Uh, in other words, it's not just about the intellectual and it's not just about activism, but it's about relationship. It's about the affective. It's about having an emotional connection to Israel and that Israel is part of your identity. So that would be how I would 
define mm. Israel engagement and see it as different uh, to other different forms of uh, other ways of uh, being educated about Israel. Sure, that's great. Uh, so one of the things I read that you had written said that, you know, we need to let young people come to their own conclusions around Israel. So can you just go a little bit into that, what you mean, what the background of that, you know, kind of where that piece came from and what that means in your work? Sure. So I think that um, if we define Israel engagement essentially about the question of identity, um, identities are not handed to you on a platter. Identities are formed. Identities are processes, not end goals. Mm. Um, and therefore, from my perspective, um, and I'll, I'll, with one caveat, which I'll come to in a sec, the, the aim of Israel engagement should be engaging each individual Jew with Israel, not with a particular um, outcome or, or um, part of Israel um, or a particular political conclusion. Uh, it's about young people primarily, although there is adult Israel engagement that we and many other organizations do, but much of the, the focus of institutions is on the next generation to feel that they have a relationship with Israel. And if you like, um, the question is not so much pro-Israel or anti-Israel, the, the dichotomy is engaged and disengaged. So in many ways, the enemy of Israel engagement is disengagement from Israel as much as it is disenchantment with Israel. Mm. Now, the one caveat I would say is, of course, like any educational endeavor, the Israel engagement endeavor, certainly what I'm in, uh, involved with, is not totally boundaryless. So, for example, um, you know, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the, the chairman of the Palestinian Authority, uh, or is engaged with Israel in the sense that he has a personal relationship with Israel. Of course he does. I would not see it as a success of Israel engagement with the Jewish community if the Jewish community had the same relationship with Israel and Mahmoud Abbas, which I'm not trying to make a political point, but clearly <laughs> it, that it's, uh, that's not the purpose of the endeavor. So it's not totally boundaryless. But in general, for me at least, forms of Israel education or Israel um, uh, programming that say that there is one or two or three acceptable ways of engaging with Israel, and then a whole bunch of others that are not acceptable, conclusions that are not acceptable, uh, first of all, unlikely to be successful, and secondly, don't really understand Israel engagement. And, and again, just in brackets, if this was an Israel studies classroom, like there is a right and a wrong answer, you know, the content and knowledge is at the center of it. So of course, there are like forms of Israel engagement that are, are, are correct and not correct in that, in that arena. Uh, and the same with in the advocacy arena, but in the engagement arena, it has to be a much broader tent of different ways um, that people engage with Israel and different outcomes that that leads to. Um, if you like, as long as that engagement leads to something, a further engagement with Israel, it's been a success. So, as you say, there it's it's a broad tent. There's many different ways of engaging with Israel. What would you say, perhaps, are some of the the most innovative way innovative ways that you've seen people? be engaged with Israel, maybe by your organization or the organizations that, because because your organization functions for, for our listeners, similarly to a federation in that you support many other agencies to do their work around Israel engagement. What are some of the most successful or innovative methods of doing Israel engagement that you've observed in the UK? Sure. So, so I would say that like traditional Israel engagement, although nobody really called it Israel engagement in the traditional sense that I'm saying, had, if you like, like four planks. There was like the Israel experience program, like the trip to Israel. There was Hebrew and Ivrit. Um, there was um, like Israeli cultural uh, experiences, like uh, Israeli dancing, Israeli cooking and so on and so forth. Your uh, celebrations. It, exactly. Um, 
And there was Mifgash, there was Encounter, uh, programs that brought Israelis and diaspora Jews together for intentional programming. Mm -hmm. The fifth, which is like knowledge, was always there. But frankly, the truth is that most Israel engagement programs, leave aside Israel studies programs, have never prioritized knowledge rightly or wrongly. So, so those were like, I would say, like the four classical pillars of Israel engagement. And in some senses, you have innovation of radically new ways of doing Israel and entrepreneurship within each of those about like new ways to do each of those. So in terms of radically new ways of doing Israel, I think that like technology uh, provides the opportunity for significant innovation. Uh, we run a school to school twinning program mm -hmm. where we twin school, which I'm sure is very familiar, twins Jewish schools in, in our case in the UK with Israeli schools. And much of that now is delivered through Zoom. And it's not pen pals anymore. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so writing a letter, um, it's, you know, you can actually be engaged and then that can go to the next step because you can actually have your individual person on your phone and, and, and do it separately. Mm -hmm. So then clearly there's technological innovation. Um, I also think that there's been a re-assertion um, in recent years of the role of arts and culture. So um, the fact that so much great Israeli TV is on Netflix now uh, and that there's much, much more access to Israeli cinema uh, and Israeli music and very important for those of us in the UK, the Eurovision Song Contest, okay, which <laughs> feels like very like not whatever, how serious is it? But I can tell you, it was like a major tool used by lots of organizations, including our own, to engage people with Israel. And a lot of that, as again, technology has played its part. A lot of that um, accessibility has led to significant innovation. For example, we uh, at UGI fund through this, the equivalent Hillel, the student organization in the UK, um, which I know has now come to London, Ontario, a program called The Incubator, where we get students to engage through arts and culture with their own Jewish identity and their connection to Israel and then produce a work of art of mm -hmm. some kind. Uh, and we have a big show and we've had students do everything from painting and model making to we had a fashion uh, show, a student who does uh, makes fashion, people student, doing film music. We had a student who made his own electric guitar Yes. One year that was Israel themed, like he's he plays <laughs> guitar and he makes models and he built a guitar that was like Israel themed guitar. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah all yeah. sorts of stuff like that. And I'll just just two other um, examples I'll give of the more kind of entrepreneurship, like using old methodologies but reviving them. So one is Onward Israel, which is this now global program which is centered around internships for students and young adults. For so eight. Program of the Jewish Agency for Israel. Yes, yeah. uh, and Massa. And um, and onward is really interesting because I think that like the traditional paradigm of Israel engagement was you go to Israel for the Jewish, but it's not like about it's not for the rest of your life. It's mm -hmm. not about, um, you know, your business life or your uh, your to get employability or anything like that. Um, you know, if you like the classic thing to do in many ways is to go and work on the kibbutz in order to escape from the kind of Western capitalist, uh, you know, the, the, the rat race. Now, Israel, you know, the startup nation, it's become an economic powerhouse and it has much to offer to young people, young Jews, in addition to it being the Jewish state. And what I think is so brilliant about Onward is certainly for students in the UK, it used to be in the summer, there's a choice between doing my Jewish identity or doing my internship. And this combines. Yeah, you don't have to make a choice now. Yeah. You can and move your life forward and have a Jewish experience. Exactly. So we launched Onward last year in the UK. Uh, with a pilot program, we had 20 spaces and we could have sold out three times over. Wow. This year we've managed to increase it uh, to 30 spaces. And again, we could still sell it three times over and it will grow and grow. And, uh, I know there's a significant number of Canadians doing it as well. 
the, the other example, which again is 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 here in Canada as well, in in um, in Toronto, was one of the places it really found its feet was the Shinshin program. So this is where you bring it's like a reverse gap year. Traditionally, Jewish kids at eighteen before going to college would spend a year in Israel finding their identity and all sorts of programming. Now bring Israelis to the diaspora communities to bring Israel with them and to engage with the community. And what I think is genius about it is. It has many of the advantages of the classic model of shluchut, i.e. it's a people-to-people encounter, authentic Israel, like a contemporary Israel, people that people can look to and so on, without many of the disadvantages. Obviously, first, it's cheaper because they're younger than our families. Secondly, it's not hierarchical. It's very much, they come as equals. They don't come to, to, to enlighten the diaspora as to, from the kind of shining star that is Israel. It's much more Jewish peoplehood idea. We bring something from Israel and we learn something from you. Uh, and in the UK, we've had uh, eight or nine years now of Shin Shinim, uh, over uh, almost 100 uh, Shin Shinim alumni now. Uh, and it's been a transformative experience for the community. So you, you had eight or nine a year? Shin yes. Shinim? Yeah. Well, and now we have 13. Right. It started smaller. It's grown. We have about 100 alumni now. I, I, I believe the program was actually piloted in Toronto for the first yes, time. Yes. So certainly it's scaled up. Yeah, and I, I have something I, like 22. 22. Any given time. Or Shinshinim in Toronto. And, yeah. and I think that programs like the Shinshinim program, I think, are the future of that form of Israel engagement. Because, first of all, we're in a world where it's not the old paradigm of um, we're all going to be in Israel or the diaspora is, is dying in some sense. It's a much more Jewish peoplehood paradigm where Jewish life exists in many ways in many places. But, of course, Israel has and brings with it certain unique features that no other Jewish community in the world has. And the Shinshinim are a brilliant, um, a, a true ambassadors in that sense for that. So we hear a lot about, and I think I've dealt with this my entire time in the Jewish world, is this kind of growing divide between diaspora Jewry, especially North American Jewry, and Israeli Jewry. And so, you know, I often found in my own experiences in Israel that Israelis don't seem to quite understand the diaspora as much as we would like them to. We don't quite seem to quite understand Israelis quite as much as they would like us to. How do you see that gap being bridged these programs? And is it something that uh, you think is going to get better or are we still going to be dealing with this? So, okay, let, let me make two slightly controversial comments to start with. Uh, the first is, um, I don't think there is a diaspora Israel crisis. I think there's like a liberal American Jewry Israel crisis. So, for example, in these conversations, you know, like the French Jewish community is not in a crisis in its relationship with Israel. The Austrian Jewish community, the, you know, the small Jewish community in Hong Kong or Singapore, you know. Latin American Jewish communities are by far yeah. not in this situation. And, and I think that we have to remember, you know, as a representative of what in many uh, Jewish spaces, there's Israel, 40% of the Jewish world, North America, 40% of the Jewish world, and the what they call the rest of the world, 20%. <laughs> I just want to say we're not the rest of the world, we're most of the world. Um, and so there are lots of Jews out there as well. And that's the first thing. And However, I think that there is a significant strain on the like smaller liberal North American, and by the way, British and other countries like the Anglophone Jewish world and uh, and Israel, particularly amongst younger people. I don't I don't think that's um, uh, an invention of the sociologists. I think that's a real feeling that people are feeling, at least for for some of those young people. And my second kind of slightly controversial comment is: I think a lot of it is not really about Israel. I actually think it's about um, how diaspora communities understand themselves, and it's a playing out of Jewish identity. Uh, um, conversations amongst diaspora communities with Israel as a kind of proxy for those battles. 
So what do I mean by that? I think that if we see Israel as, or if Israel is taught in the diaspora purely as the vision, then of course the reality is it's like a real country with like a political leadership and all of the challenges uh, of any other country plus a whole bunch of other ones from its various socio-political and geopolitical situation. Um, and if all we're taught is that Israel is, you know, the 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 the, the dream of the halutzim, when first of all it wasn't only ever that, you know, my one of my favourite statistics at its height, only seven percent of Jews who lived in the land of Israel lived on kibbutzim. Now, at the, at the, the highest point that they had, like there were ninety three percent of the Jews at that time were living lives like anyone else. Whatever doesn't mean the visionaries weren't important, but even at that time they weren't the totality. And also today, you know, Israel is a very different place. Half of Israeli Jewry comes from the Sephardi Mizrahi world. And the vast majority of certainly Anglo Jewry outside of Israel, English speaking Jewry does not come from that world. But of course, there are significant mm-hmm. populations who do. But, you know, the, 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 the normative Israeli mainstream Jewish experience is sending your kids to the army. The normative American uh, teenage Jewish experience is preparing for college. Like, it's just such different worlds that we inhabit. Sure. So I think so. I think that a lot of it is a kind of inevitable breaking down of what was never really a sustainable partnership. Um, having said that, on the other hand, and in terms of making things better, I do think that there are significant efforts now underway in the Jewish world on both sides to understand each other. First of all, to set realistic, under realistically understand what that means, um, and to understand the unique situation that each community. By the way, not just the North American Jewish community, but each place within North America, uh, and not just the Israeli Jewry, but each sector of the, of the Israeli Jewish society, and of course Israeli non-Jewry. Um, I think that there are um, there there is a growing realization that Israel engagement needs to be much more than just the politics of Israel. That we can't bank on there being a political leadership in Israel that happens to agree with the political leanings of most North American Jews. And that if that is Israel engagement, it's not really engagement. That's like, you know, um, I'm a liberal Westerner. So I like Canada at the moment because Justin Trudeau is kind of like liberalish and good looking and that's all cool. Uh, but I wouldn't like it if it was Stephen Harper. Like, like you're not engaged with Canada at that point. You're engaged mm-hmm. with the liberal party in, in Canada, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's different. And the Israel engagement needs to reorient itself to not just be about, do you agree or disagree with the policies of the Israeli government? Do you agree or disagree with uh, Israeli security policy towards the Palestinians? And much more, if you like, back to the future of um, what are the values of Jewish peoplehood? Why does Israel exist? What, what are the things that Israel can credibly offer to the Jewish world? And what are the things that not you're always going to be disappointed with, but are not going to be the same as where you live? In what way is Israel going to be different from, not just the same as you? And by the way, I think this is the same challenge that many Western societies face internally, not just finding collective modes of of collective solidarity, but also um, a heightened respect for difference. And if you like, so sorry, just to finish, Go ahead. the model is not so much how can we uh, bring the marriage back together or how can we affect some kind of divorce I actually think it's much more, it was never a marriage, it was more like siblings. Hmm. How can we learn to live together? How can we learn to both have things that we do together and that we really, you know, projects together that are really important for the Jewish world, but also to recognize that 
you know, I work in Jewish education. My brother is a lawyer and my sister works in theater. We're three very different people. We love each other. We get on. But if I wanted to pretend that I know as much about theater as my sister, she will quite uh, reasonably tell me to butt out because I'm not in the theater world. And if my brother said that he knew loads about the Israel diaspora relationship, I'd tell him he doesn't really know what he's talking about. That's the relationship I think we need to get to, to be siblings rather than parent-child or married. Mm-hmm. You know, so I guess one of the things I've been reading a lot about recently is this kind of argument between peoplehood, which you've talked about quite a bit, uh, as opposed, right, that they are, the that peoplehood, Jewish peoplehood and Jewish national identity, right, the, uh, the Israeli identity, are at odds with each other. Um, now, not everybody says that. Some say, oh, they go hand in hand and, you know, one leads to another. How do you view that? And what do you think of those arguments that these are two competing ideologies? So, so I think they go together. And I think the one leads the other and the other to the one. And I'll explain briefly why. But then, but I also want to give credence to the, to the argument that you presented. The reason I think they go together is that for me, you know, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? But what comes first is the Jewish people, the concept of the Jewish collective. That, I think, is a, a biblical idea, ultimately, and um, certainly an idea that emerged very early in Jewish history that, you know, like the sense in which there is more than just your local, you know, Judaism is not just a religion. Judaism is, is a people. We are a people. From that, particularly in the context of the modern world and the world of nation states, comes the concept of Jewish self-determination because we have a connection to a land and, and so on and so on. I won't go through the whole story. I'm sure many of you learned it at, uh, at Hebrew school, but you know the whole the whole Zionist story. But for me, the Zionist story only makes sense in the context of the peoplehood story, because without the peoplehood, who are the Am Yisrael who are in Eretz Israel, if you like? And mm-hmm. um, so for me, Zionism is is a natural outgrowth of peoplehood, and the other way around. Because if you even forget peoplehood for a minute, if you grew up as an Israeli and you're an Israeli Zionist Jew, you know, who hasn't given too much thought to it. Actually, what do you discover when there's the terrible events in Pittsburgh? You discover that those people over there in America who, yeah, well, you never really thought too much about and you don't, for all the reasons we said before, maybe you feel very politically different from. Actually, in some sense, you know, they are Amacha. They're, they're, they're your people as well. They're our people. And I think that Zionism can also lead to a sense of peoplehood. I'm very struck, for example, by the fact that many Jews, both Israeli and non-Israeli, who would never think of going to synagogue when they're in their home community, they go on holiday and they find themselves at the Jewish Museum and they go to the service at the shul. Why? Because they do. Mm -hmm. Not because they're acting out some grand ideology, but because there is still, if you like, the ethnic, the ethnics that exists within uh, most, not all, but most Jewish souls. For sure. And. But so that's why I think that there is not a contradiction between the two and arguably the one leads the other and the other to the one. However, I fully agree with you that many people do see a contradiction. Many people would, would prefer, most of the people who see a contradiction, by the way, I think would prefer that we thought about peoplehood and didn't think about Zionism because they say that Zionism is too centralizing, puts Israel at the center of the Jewish world, makes Israel a more valid form of Jewish life, all that kind of thing. And it kind of, you know, the, the in classical Zionism, the concept Shilat HaGolah, the the negation of the diaspora, they would say, is still there in some sense in, in Zionism today, and, and they don't like that. And I think that there is some truth to that view, and certainly there was some truth to that view. It's very clear that many of the early Zionists had a deeply negative um, intellectual, emotional uh, um, deconnection to the diaspora, and they saw the diaspora as basically there to support Israel, give money and be a source for Aliyah, and if not, to just disappear. But you know what? They, I mean... 
in, in one sense, they were absolutely right. In another sense, they're absolutely wrong. In what sense they're absolutely right? Israel, when it was founded, was 6% of the Jewish world, and today it's 43%, 44% and growing. Israel is the center of the Jewish world demographically, and in 30, 40, 50 years, I think, unless things change very dramatically, we'll have really entrenched that position. However, on the other hand, it's pretty clear that in the 72 years since Israel was founded, other forms of Judaism in other parts of the world have thrived and developed and, and all sorts of incredible creativity and beautiful things have happened. And they, some of them have happened through the inspiration of Israel or through Israeli funding or shlichim or whatever. But many of them have happened just like locally by Jews doing Jew, Jewish mm -hmm. in their own place. And I think the idea that the, the diaspora is somehow is in crisis um, and that there won't be a sustainable diaspora going forward, I've never bought into. I think the diaspora will change. I think where the diaspora is will change. I think some existing major sense of Jewish life will shrink and contract, just as Baghdad and Warsaw did in the 20th century. So who knows, maybe Los Angeles and Toronto will in the 21st or the 22nd, but others will arise. So just as Tel Aviv and New York did in the 20th century, maybe Beijing and um, Mumbai will in the 22nd, Dubai. 21st, 22nd, or Dubai, because... You know that that and and I don't see the rising and the falling as great tragedy. I see it, and well, it might be caused by great tragedy, and I hope it is not. But assuming these things happen more organically, I see that as as, as a wonderful thing. I see that the, the the network of Judaism around the world can only be strengthened by some places rising and others falling. Hmm. It's I I think it's funny. Like when I when I worked with the World Union of Jewish Students, I would often interact with people with with. Jewish lay leaders from other parts of the world who would make comments like Europe's a graveyard or, or like there's no Jews, these Jewish communities are dying and, you know, it's all polarizing. And you think like, you know, shout out to my friend Rabbi Yehuda Sana, who's just uh, become the, the chief rabbi of the United Arab Emirates and uh, has opened the that's first... A, that's a strange title. I know, and has, has opened the first synagogue in the Arab world in the last 70 years, first new synagogue right. in Dubai. Right, I mean, so, so, so 100 years ago, Rav Cook became the first Ashkenazi chief rabbi of the land of Israel for, like, ever. Mm -hmm. And people at the same time would have said, what a strange, curious, mad concept. There's only, like, thirty or 40,000 Jews there at the moment. Who are you ministering to? And surely you should be over in Poland or Russia. That's the real heart of the Jewish world. And here we are 100 years later. So who knows? Maybe... Rabbi Yudasana will be seen in the same breath as Rob Cook. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it's a wild thought. Yeah, it's a wild thought. <laughs> <laughs> but certainly as a halutz, as a pioneer, maybe, if not uh, as a Jewish philosopher. Yes. But, uh, yes. Yeah. Um, I, one of the one of the my favorite articles that you've written over the years um, is um, an article called The Crisis of Content. Um, and I think this is something that that is a very big issue and something I encounter every day in my work as a Hillel professional. Um, and I'm interested if you can give us a, a little bit of background into that. And, and maybe I, I like the story of you uh, asking a group of teenagers what Zionism was and hearing their, their kind of response to it and what that made you feel. Sure. So, so I wrote this article a, a few years back now, actually, when I was doing much more like face-to-face -face work with young people. So pretty much every day was in a day school or a youth movement or on a campus or something, just like educating about Israel. And one of the things that I was struck by again and again and again in all of the different settings across the denominational space uh, and, in, and, and across the age space as well, one of the things I was really struck by was the incredibly low level of, if you like, just basic knowledge about Israel. Um, and 
you know, young people who could not name one Israeli novelist, young people who said Zionism just was being pro-Israel. That's all it meant. Um, young people who, you know, maybe could get 1948, but that was it. That was the only date in Israeli history they could they could say. Um, and, and to be clear, many of these young people were incredibly bright, had fantastic educations, were in immersive Jewish frameworks, were engaged with Israel, like had been many times, felt very connected to Israel, but just didn't know very much. And my concern was that I didn't, I had yet to see a educational framework that reliably could impart content, basic knowledge and understanding of Israel into uh, the vast swathe of the young people that it was working with. Uh, and if you like, I was this was a critique of all of the frameworks. And I was not particular to a denomination. It wasn't about day schools versus Hebrew schools. It wasn't about campus versus youth movement. Um, as far as I could see, in this one sense, none of them really were working. Uh, and of course, there were always the honourable exceptions, but they were very much that, the exception. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think the article was a little bit of a, um, I want to put this on the agenda of the educator community, uh, but also I tried to say maybe there are things that we could do. And I said, you know, the first thing you have to do is recognize that it is a problem. Secondly, you have to find those places where there is good practice and really um, kind of understand what, uh, what they're doing and how they're doing it and why they're successful. And thirdly, replicate, 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 replicate. Um, whether I've succeeded in doing this, whether I've succeeded in teaching good content or finding people who can teach good content, I don't know. I think I wrote the article four years ago, maybe even five years ago now. Uh, and I'm not sure the, that things are so different uh, today, but I still do think it is an issue, um, despite at the beginning of this uh, this podcast having said Israel engagement is primarily about the connection that each individual Jew has to Israel. I have always believed and do believe that knowledge and understanding are important. Um, and it just seems to me obvious that, um, you know, if you said I feel strongly connected to English literature um, you know, I really, really passionately care about. In addition to feeling very good about English literature and on a survey ticking that you feel very connected to it, you'd also expect most people who say that to have read lots of books. Mm-hmm. And like that was my basic concern mm-hmm. was there was like a lack of um, basic knowledge and understanding. Um, and it's a hard one because most Israel engagement now today happens in informal educational spaces which I think is quite right because I think informal education is the way to go. However, one distinct disadvantage to them is there's no assessment. In fact, it's it's not a bug. It's a feature of informal education. It's not about assessment. It's not about testing. And the question is, how without testing do you actually build knowledge? And one example in the UK that has arisen since then, very interestingly, is an organization called Etgar. Etgar is the Hebrew word for challenge. They started doing Jewish studies for primary school, for like elementary school kids. They designed a book and they have a big annual quiz where they get kids from all different schools together and they get them together and they do like a big quiz event and there's a winner and so on and so forth. Uh, And they've started it now with secondary school, with high school students ages to do with Israel. So they've produced basically an Israel fact book, if you like, that the pupils study and then they come together for this quiz event that's on Yom Hatzmaut and and there's a winner and it's centered around knowing stuff. But one of the things I'll say that I think is really interesting about Etgar, um, and particularly the, the primary school one, the Jewish studies one, or I think this will come to the Israel one, is that in addition to rewarding who gets the best score, which school has the best score, they also get the schools to track progress. So for the kids who knew less to start with, maybe less involved families and so on, if they have progressed a lot, 
That is as much, if not more, a success as the kids who are getting 90%, 95%. And I think that there is something there about using this kind of fun quiz methodology. It is assessment, but it's not, there's no grade at the end. It's just for the, the glory of doing it. Uh, and in a bit of competition with the other schools. I think maybe there, there might be a way to uh, really up the level of content. Hmm. But again, still, even within the, certainly within the British Jewish community, they're the exception by being very content focused, not the rule. Sure. Okay. So segueing maybe into just, just as we begin to wrap up the, this podcast, um, one of the things we're going to be asking our, our guests each time uh, we host a, a podcast is going to be about some challenges and hopes that they see in the Jewish world. So I'm interested, like, when you th- look around at the Jewish world, you know, you, you've been professional in the Jewish community for 10 years now, you know, what are the, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges facing the Jewish community? Okay, so, so we'll start with challenges, as long as we do get to do hopes Yeah, let's as do well. challenges. <laughs> well, no, 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 we're going to do, let, okay, so let's, let's say a couple of challenges, a couple of things that are giving you hope. Okay, um, I will do two very different challenges. Um, I'll, um, let me do one that's about a kind of bottom-up challenge and another that's a top-down challenge. So the, the, the kind of bottom-up challenge, I do see, uh, I see a significant challenge with um, the engagement of Jews with Jewish community structures. Um, in almost every community in the Jewish world, the traditional mediators uh, and interface in the, between the Jewish community, understood, you know, the Jewish people and Judaism in some sense, mm-hmm. uh, are under are being challenged uh, and in some cases are being severely challenged, be it financially and so on and so forth. Be they federations, synagogues, Hillel's, um, and a whole raft of other JCCs, a whole raft of other community institutions. Again, that's not to say everything is doom and gloom. There are wonderful examples of expanding programming, of growing budgets, of innovation and so on. But in general, uh, and this is true in Israel as well, by the way, a lot of the traditional mediators, institutional mediators, um, are being are being challenged. And one reason is because Jews are not always looking to go to a building or join a committee or sign their kid up to a thing anymore like that the way that that people engage with their identities is changing and the way that and i think the jewish community needs to radically change how it understands itself or else many of these institutions will not only run out of donors but may well run out of customers um and there's all sorts of thoughts about changing to more relational models and so on and so forth but i think that is a significant challenge um the second challenge the more top-down one is actually about funding um the jewish world in some sense, has more resource than it's ever had, probably in fewer hands than it's ever had. Um, and I'm not talking about the Jewish people in general, but I'm talking about that section of the Jewish people who is willing to fund Jewish education, Jewish institutions. The rise and rise and rise of the mega philanthropist and the, the gradual but quite steep drop-off in the community campaign. And this is true pretty much across the Jewish world. It's certainly true in the UK. It's certainly true in North America. And I think that there are like two challenges with it. First of all is if those mega philanthropists begin to turn away from the idea of Jewish as something they want to fund, then we're in real shtuck. If a, de- a federation had 100,000 donors and 10,000 of them decided that they wanted to fund other things, okay, that's a problem. But if it has 10 donors and two of them decide they want to fund other things, that might be existential. Um, and the second challenge is that more and more of the decisions in the Jewish world are forced into the hands of fewer and fewer people. Uh, and I think that's a significant challenge, both on grounds of kind of democracy and shouldn't the Jewish people 
shouldn't Jewish institutions be governed by the Jewish people, but also on the grounds of what priorities. So what might be strategically the right thing for the Jewish people may not be the particular priority of a particular funder. And we can all of us can think of many examples where Jewish institutions have got big shiny donations to do things which are not necessarily core to their mission, but the donor decided. So there you go. From the bottom up, Jews not necessarily wanting to affiliate or engage with Jewish institutions. From the top down, Jews not wanting to fund those institutions, and therefore the, those institutions getting their funding from fewer and fewer people. Hmm. Okay. And now perhaps some hopes. Things, things, things that you look at, you look out of the world and you think, ah, but at least there's that. Yeah. So first of all, I'm an optimist by temperament and I can't help but be and I am and I think that again let me do two things that give me optimism the first is that um, the Jewish people like not only got through the 20th century but actually has entered the 21st century in a really exciting and dynamic way Uh, you know the 20th century had major challenges the Jewish people obviously uh, the holocaust and, and the attempt to end the Jewish people, but also mass migration and, you know, the the public anti-Semitism existing in many societies in the world, um, institutionalized anti-Semitism and so on. And the Jewish people managed to found a state and embed themselves, ourselves within uh, Western society and so on. And I don't want to take away from the challenges that come with that. But in general, the Jewish people is secure and is, um, you know, is flourishing in many places. And that fact alone, the fact that there is continuous innovation in the Jewish world, the fact that there are thriving Jewish centers all over the globe, you know, I don't know the exact number, but out, you know, of course, within Israel, the Jewish population is growing and Jewish creativity knows no bounds. But outside of Israel as well, there are dozens and dozens of um, uh, independent sites of significant Jewish uh, revival uh, across the denominational spectrum, all sorts of non-religious expressions of Judaism. Um, you know, Judaism, this is, there probably has never been a better time to be Jewish than today. And I think we often forget that, which is not to put aside the challenges. The other thing that gives me hope, I think, for the Jewish world is I think that Judaism has a lot to offer in terms of answers to some of the profound questions, but certainly those of us in the West are facing in our societies in general. So just to give two examples, number one, the question of always on culture and mental health and resilience and, um, you know, pressure and 24-7 living and all that kind of thing. Well, Judaism has Shabbat and there's a Jewish meditative tradition and there are Jewish traditions around gratitude practices and all this kind of stuff. Like there's a wellspring of Jewish wisdom um, and Jewish traditions um, that can be not in a completely authentic way. We're not just saying oh, you should like put your phone down for Shabbat because that's what God meant at Sinai. We're saying Judaism at a very profound level understands that there, need, there is a difference between the time that we work and the time that we don't. The time that we look inward to our family and our community and ourselves and the time we look outward to the world and our businesses and our country and so on. And I think that, like, that, that Judaism has within it wellsprings of wisdom that can be, uh, if they're well, and this is the challenge, I suppose, is to operationalize into programs, but that, can help to answer some of the big existential challenges. Um, and another example, by the way, is, um, you know, everyone talks today about the global world where we're globally minded, but we act locally. In many ways, Judaism is the ultimate global faith. You know, we are part of a global people with a nation state. And yet I live in London in the UK and you guys live in London in Ontario. and We act locally. And I think that, you know, Judaism is well set up for that. Like Judaism is not out of date. 
Yes. I think it might feel like we're part of this ancient faith, but Judaism is not out of date. Yeah, it's very interesting. I like seeing these a number of organizations who've tried to, I suppose, jump on the wellness bandwagon and try and try and create methodology that that brings Jewish thought and inspiration into into these these kind of modern practices around around health and wellness and, yeah. and, and living your full self. On the Cool Jews podcast, what we're all about is is amplifying the the stories and, and the work of, of the young Jewish professionals around the world um, who are innovating in the Jewish community. And, and maybe because, you know, they're in that middle management stage or their younger end of the community, they, their voices don't get heard so much and we don't hear that much about them. So um, on every episode, we'll always be asking our guests that, who are the people that we should be watching? Who are the people that are inspiring you in that demographic? Yeah, Robin, who's hot to trap, man? <laughs> Um, so I want to call out two amazing uh, female Jewish leaders uh, working in, in the Jewish world, one in North America and one in the UK. So from North America, I want to call out Rabbi Georgette Kennebrai. Um, Georgette is on the Schusterman Fellowship or was on the cohort that I was on, which is an amazing program with the Schusterman Foundation. Um, she is a rabbi based in, in New York. Uh, she has a congregation in Manhattan. Um, she has done really amazing work within uh, the sphere of Jews of color, um, also working with Jews by choice, um, LGBT plus identifying Jews, really the, the, the important intersection between Jew, the Jewish people in the Jewish world and traditional Jewish institutions. So she has a pulpit. She is a, you know, she's in an institution, but she wants to open those institutions up uh, to be more inclusive. Uh, and to reflect the, particularly in North America, the incredible um, and growing diversity um, along all different axes of, of uh, Jews today. Um, and she's really a, a, a wonderful person, an amazing activist, an amazing educator. Um, and, you know, I've been privileged to get to know her through the Schusterman Fellowship. And I hope if any of you ever go in New York and this virus ends, so we can go to shul again, you might uh, seek her out and uh, learn from and with her. The second person is... Uh, a student rabbi in the UK called Deborah Blauston. Um, Deborah, or Debs, I've known Debs for, for many years now. That's why. Um, is, grew up in a reformed Jewish home in the UK, largely uh, not particularly uh, connected to Judaism or Jewish life, but through her synagogue and through her youth movement, um, got more and more involved and invested in, in the Jewish people in the Jewish world. And now is a student rabbi. She will be ordained by Leobet College in London in July. Um, and really is one of the most exciting uh, prospects entering the, I would say, the global rabbinate, certainly the British Jewish rabbinate. Debs is innovative. She has a master's in educational technology. Um, she kind of gets young people. She's equally comfortable at the World Zionist Congress or the Vard Hapoel, you know, the big political um, um, uh, world within the Jewish community as she is sitting on, uh, you know, kicking back with some teenagers, talking about what's going on in their lives and making Judaism relevant to them and making them relevant to their community. She's been snapped up to be uh, a rabbi, rabbi educator at Finchley Reform Synagogue in London, uh, which is an amazing community as well. Uh, and she really is, you know, the future, I think, or part of the future 
But certainly for British Jewry, I hope we can hang on to her and you North Americans don't steal her away <laughs> with your do our big best. salaries and your... Uh, <laughs> well, she has spent. She has just spent the last three summers at Camp George in Ontario. Yes. Oh, um, right so here. She's, uh, so she's she understands. Here. She gets us. <laughs> um, but really, you know, Georgette and Debs are two of the most exciting people and I feel privileged to call both of them friends. Uh, but also, most importantly, as I said, what I have and can learn from both of them They've challenged me and inspired me, and I hope they do the same for you. That's great. That's great. You know, I always feel like someone can really relate to teens when we say things like "kicking it with teens." You know, yeah. <laughs> that sounds very authentic. I think that's how the kids talk. Yeah. Well, they don't talk anymore. They just, uh, you know, send each other DMs on uh, Snapchat. So. Yeah. I don't even think they do that anymore. Right? No, it's just dancing on TikTok. That's right? pretty much it, right? People can't see, but I'm dancing right here <laughs> in my chair. It is not good. You don't want to see. No, you really don't. <laughs> so uh, thanks, everybody, for joining us. For this first episode of the Cool Juice podcast, Cool Juice doing cool things in cool places. Uh, we hope to uh, you tune in again to uh, hear the story for, of another Cool Jew. Thank you, Robin, for joining us. Thank you very much. Hopefully you won't get stuck here due to COVID-19, but if you do, you got a home. That's yes. very kind. Thank you. I couldn't <laughs> imagine a better place to be stuck as the global pandemic strike. <laughs> <laughs>